Welcome to Montgomery Talks, our regular podcast on local issues. Today, I have Scott Goldstein, who has been chief of the Montgomery County Fire and Rescue Service since May 2015. He commands a staff of something like 2,700 civilian sworn and volunteer personnel mm-hmm. across 37 fire and rescue stations. Correct. MCFRS responds to more than 120,000 calls each year and operates with an annual budget of something like $230 million. About that, correct. Before moving into the front office, he was a firefighter and worked his way up from up to battalion chief. And even as a teenager in Montgomery County, he served as a volunteer firefighter rescuer. Thank you for being here, Chief. Oh, thank you very much. You come at a time when there's been some discussion about emergency communications, which I think probably affects fire as much as uh, anybody else in the county. There was a 14-hour outage on Memorial Day, excuse me, Mother's Day weekend. The county had to, had a plan for a 250-foot tower in Olney near the ICC and Georgia Avenue. That was nixed by Governor, uh, excuse me, County Executive Mark Elrich after residents complained. Was that the right solution? The situation is, is as the community grows, as the as-built environment, the structures change, as taller buildings get built, replacing smaller buildings, the coverage of a radio system gets uh, impacted. So that's a continual and perpetual process of ensuring that we have adequate wide area building coverage. So the infrastructure that was put in in the late 1990s, very early 2000, is uh, in need of replacement. That's what this project as part of the Public Safety System Modernization Initiative is incorporating. And the ability for police, fire rescue, public works, as well as our other support organizations to have effective in-building as well as on-street coverage is, is paramount for us to give the, the customers, our, our residents and our visitors, effective service. So it's a tool we use every day. We know parts of the county where we do not have effective cellular coverage. We all get those dropped phone calls and we all recognize those parts. And that 911 infrastructure the radio system that we use is and has to be more reliable than the cellular system because we cannot revert back to this cellular system at time of need. A firefighter or police officer cannot stop what they're doing, dial 911, call for assistance in those means and manner. They have to be able to reach their microphone, press the button, call for assistance, and, and that be effectively heard by their coworkers on the street as well as the communication center. So. This project, uh, which is facilitated by the Department of Technology Services, is implementing a 22-site or or so solution that aims for and gets a 95% in-building coverage as well as 95% reliability. And that's very paramount. We would all like to say we want 100%. 100% is economically unpractical. 95, 95, as it's phrased, is the industry uh, norm, the industry standard to a radio system coverage. So as we go forward, we're definitely working in partnership with the, the folks from DTS to, to support that. And, and as outlined in recent council actions, we have contingency plans because from time to time, just like the, the phone breaks, your radio breaks, we have to revert back to those contingencies. So it's something that 
residents need to be clear on that we are ready and able to respond. We have means to communicate and the public safety radio system is, is a key part of how we help our people, our members be safe and provide customer service. Well, if, to summarize, you make it sound as though it's something that the fire service can, can over, whatever, the limitations the fire service can overcome them. Yes For a no? short period of time, it's the best way to phrase that. Because okay. well, what I, you saw what the governor said um, just yesterday. He sent out a series of tweets thinking that the decision to not go ahead with the tower in Olney was a bad move. Uh, he said, quote, inexplicably, some Montgomery County officials are considering standing in the way of a radio tower critical to our first responders. This comes after a 14-hour outage last month and firefighters raising concerns that the current system is at grave risk of catastrophic failure. It seems as though, as much as you're saying that it's possible to overcome the limitations, the governor is saying, uh, governor is siding with people who think that it's much worse than that. The, the reliability of the radio system is critical for the, the public safety responders. As I said, for periods of time and, and to some extent, we can deal with our contingency plans. Our contingency plans are best suited for in-street coverage meaning as if we were standing outside of the building and, and talking, those contingency plans do not have as, as strong penetration in the building. So there's, there's a trade-off there. So the purest capability is for the police officer, the firefighter, to be able to use their radio on their hip and call from no matter where they are in the structure and be heard by the, the 911 center. And uh, these contingency plans support a part of that, but we have to uh, recognize that there's some impact. Okay. And just before we started this, Mr. Elrich put out a lengthy, well, not a terribly lengthy statement, but too long to read here concerning the communications, saying that there's been extra training and preparation for public safety personnel, and they're better prepared to address emergency situations. As a result of these efforts, the county is in a better place. You mentioned a couple times in building. I understand that there's building codes require buildings to have amplifiers. amplifiers. Correct. And the county is rather slow in forcing builders to include them in the building. Is that fair to say? Or I wouldn't um, be accurate to characterize that as slow. That regulatory change dates back a few years now. The mark is 26,000 square feet. So any structure in excess of 26,000 square feet of of occupiable space requires adequate and ample radio coverage inside the structure, which, if necessary, requires that amplifier to be installed. That is a a regulatory thing for new construction, new buildings. So an older building, a building that is pre-existing, may not have effective radio coverage in it and that code does not have a reachback clause to it unless there was a, a renovation or a, a change in occupancy style. So we put these amplifiers in fire stations. We put these amplifiers in, in all the public facilities as a private industry would be doing. It's what Metro is doing to expand the radio system coverage for both the customers as well as the public safety members in the Metro tunnels. That's, uh, that's the same technology. So that infrastructure is there that does provide improved coverage for, for the uh, responders in these, these large structures. But as I am aware, the code is not requiring a reach back or a change for existing structures. And as we go about 
that'll be, you know, a part of new construction for these larger area buildings. But the public safety radio system modernization helps improve that because it provides a stronger radio infrastructure that can help penetrate these buildings as well. So new buildings, as they're being constructed, are getting these amplifiers included in them. Correct. Department of Permanent Services identifies the the square footage trigger and then does the the follow-on reference the code requirements. Okay. So, uh, all right. Thank you, sir. Now, on another issue, it's not directly related to the fire service, but I'm, I'm lumping it together because we lump together first responders. And the Montgomery County Police is going through a period of intense scrutiny Part of that is the killing of an unnamed African-American man, which obviously has no connection to the fire service. But some of the other reasons for the scrutiny are how people of color are treated by these officers. I bring this up because diversity, you list, diversity among your firefighters is one of your issues. So how are you addressing diversity among the fire service? So our recruitment process, our ability to have an organization, as you said, 2,700 folks, that's the uh, aggregate number of career and volunteer personnel, about 1,200 career and, and a little over 1,400 volunteer personnel that are qualified to ride. There's additional volunteers that are in support roles and, and non-operational positions. But that 2,700 folks are what men and women you'd see on the apparatus out on the street on calls. If you want the organization to reflect the community, we need to have the ability to recruit, to hire, to train, to onboard folks that, you know, come from our community. And as Montgomery County is a very diverse community, that is is a focus that we have been using for the last four to five years as part of the county hiring process is a preference for county residents, giving a, a uh, point process for, for several capabilities, as well as multilingual. We're aiming to enable more of our folks to be able to converse in different in multiple languages, and that's something that is throughout the county government. But those are examples of, of the, the diversity uh, approach. That starts with awareness. It starts with communications and education. It's outreach to these groups, these communities, about what the fire service offers, what the fire service is about. Some cultures tend to shy away from the fire service or the public safety community as a career path, lack of understanding, lack of knowledge. So before you go to recruiting, it starts with outreach and interactions. It's just a different form of education. And that is something that I have created partnerships with Reverend Caseman and the faith leaders group so that we have outreaches throughout the different faith organizations and the faiths throughout the county, but also Bruce Adams previously and and now um, Diane Vu as leaders of the Office of Community Partnership. They are, as I call them, the, the people that have hallways full of doors because they have the outreach and the interactions with the, those different communities. And, and I had my folks reach out to, to Bruce at, at the time and begin that dialogue and being engaged in the, the different communities. And these are large community events or small handful of meetings of, of folks from that community to begin to answer their questions, to begin to show them the the fire service, the fire and emergency services organization, and how they, as a a member, can be involved. The opportunities are both career and volunteer. So it's not specifically someone who's looking for a full-time job. The perfect volunteer profile, there is no such thing. Everybody fits the volunteer profile from a 20-year-old to a 60-year-old, someone who's got skills, 
in maybe administrative and personnel management can be a perfect volunteer to help with the, the organization of 150 volunteers in one of the volunteer departments within the county. So there's a wide range of, of opportunities for folks to serve within Montgomery County Fire Rescue. And it starts by that exactly that, communications, interaction, part of education, and explaining and showing people what the fire service and emergency services is about. Okay. How about women in the fire service? Mm-hmm. Um, how many women do you have in the fire service? On the career side, it's about a 7%. Of the 1,200, there about 7% of, of the force is, is career. When we broaden that out and include the volunteers, it opens up to about 30, 30%. One of the things that is very evident in the uh, volunteer service, on the career side, you have to be a firefighter rescuer. You have to be a firefighter as well as an EMT. There is no opportunity for a person to only be interested in the medical role or the emergency medical technician. That's not the case on the volunteer side. The volunteer side can and does you know, include folks that only want to be medical providers and folks that want to be firefighter rescuers. We see 50% of our EMS-only volunteers being females. We see a very large capability and contingency of, of our volunteer service providers being female. And it's something that we have a work group working on right now to consider expanding the career force to engage and include EMS-only personnel. Because several key components, claustrophobia and heights. To be a firefighter rescuer, you cannot be afraid of heights. You cannot be afraid of climbing a 100-foot ladder up in the air. That kicks out some people, male and female. The other component is uh, while we're in a nice studio that has dark walls, make this studio, you know, two foot square in a tunnel that's, you know, 20 and 30 feet long and make it completely dark and have, you know, your member crawl through that. So tight spaces, dark spaces, limited visibility spaces is a character of firefighting work environment that some people are not well suited for. So we see claustrophobic as well as heights as our two main kickouts for for folks that wish to be firefighter rescuers, but, you know, find that they're not able to overcome those those different fears. EMS-only providers don't have to worry about the heights. Don't have to worry about the dark crawling down a hallway full of smoke to get to the back bedroom. So as we expand this, hopefully in the next 12 to 18 months, I look forward to us having a, an opportunity to bring on EMS-only personnel and, and see the membership of the department change as a part of that. I'm really enjoying this discussion, but now is a really good time to take a break. We'll be right back. This is Montgomery Talks. I'm Doug Tolman, Montgomery Community Media's senior reporter, and I'm speaking with Fire Chief Scott Goldstein. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. MCM, your community media center, is making Montgomery County a great place to live through programs like 21 This Week. Montgomery County's hardest-hitting political talk show keeps you up to date with the local political scene. Montgomery Community Media, our middle name is Community. And we're back. This is Doug Tallman, senior reporter with Montgomery Community Media, speaking with Fire Chief Scott Goldstein. 
And we were talking about previously about getting more women in the fire service by changing some of the rules needed for so there could be EMT only career firefighters. Additionally, one of the things we've done for the last several years is have a women's outreach day, a women's awareness day for our, our hiring event as part of a recruiting activity, showing the ladies, asking them to come to our academy, showing them what, what it takes and what's entailed in the, the physical requirements. Because a person, be them an athlete, be them a college, high school football player who walks in off the street and tries to do our physical agility exam, will not succeed. It is a very task specific to some fire service uh, activities. And there are specific steps and traits that someone needs to take to be able to succeed it in its little over 10 minute time frame. It's not all brute force and strength. So we did a, uh, a women's targeted, women's focused outreach and recruiting activity to show them how it was something that everybody can do and through learning the skills, learning the opportunities that they uh, improved um, their confidence and became aware of their abilities to you know, progress forward in the, the hiring uh, selection process. You say 7% of your firefighters are women, correct? correct. And of the career group. Of the career group. So they are firefighters. Firefighter rescuers, yes. Firefighter rescuers. And they work alongside men in the fire station. Mm-hmm. How well does that work? How many complaints are you getting from women saying that, you know, I really hate, this is not a good working environment? Very few. In the relation that there's 37 work sites, as you outlined earlier, fire stations, the fact that there's a traditionally three shifts at each facility. So there's about 120 different work units. The opportunities for that crew to get to a a relational ship point where they're working together and understanding and supporting each other is, is paramount. And the number of concerns we have the number of, of complaints, as you said, my phrase of Doug, is, is limited and very small compared to the, the number of, of stations and shifts. Working in different parts of the county, create and, and give yourself different exposures. Those that like to work in the busier and city environment like to be in the south part of the county. Those that like more of the rural operations, there's a different firefighting environment when you don't have water or fire hydrants nearby. That's just an example of everybody can find a different part of the organization, a different shift within the organization that they find comfortable as well as work together. And it's a a part of what makes the department a a great department because of the diversity that our members uh, bring to the organization from their their background. Mm -hmm. I mean, in any work environment, there's gonna be complaints between, between Employees. I mean, how many complaints are you fielding, say, a year? Small percentage. I couldn't tell you a number. Couldn't tell you a percentage. Dozens. A dozen. A dozens would be would be would be a high number of complaints pertaining to Doug and Scott not getting along, right? Or or Doug and Jill not getting along. The main parameter of of the understanding of the, the the fire service is we go from a basic medical call where we're helping someone with a a non-serious and a non-stressful situation to the next call may be a cardiac arrest Mm -hmm. to the next call may be a a smoke alarm situation or so the the ability for that crew member to be able to ride the tide in the ups and downs of their emotions and stresses wears on him and her 
the ability for that crew to return to the fire station and be able to, with support, we have a great peer network as well as stress support uh, capabilities, deal with the different things that they experienced because we, we do have to be prepared for the next call. And at times our members are, are impacted to the point where they need to be relieved from duty. But it's a, a character uh, component that makes our providers uh, exceptional because they can go from zero to full throttle at mm-hmm. a moment's notice. I understand there's a plan being developed for paramedics to provide mobile health care. Been in place a couple of years now. Absolutely. Can, can you describe it, please? Absolutely. So as a fire service main goal has always been to prevent the 911 call. You want to do education, outreach, code. All of those activities were to help people prevent having to call the fire department, have a safer home environment, a safer work environment. Apply that same view to the medical environment. As our community is growing older in place, as it changes in the healthcare field co-about, we are actually experiencing and being faced with sicker people at home. What used to be a couple day or a week long hospital stay is now maybe a outpatient procedure. And then the person is at home with supplemental medical capabilities. Mm -hmm. People are living longer with also complex medical conditions. So preventing the 911 call applied to the medical uh, situation, we want to enable our our customers, our residents to have control of their medical situation, be comfortable and capable of engaging and managing their situations at home, and not need to use 911 or the ambulance capability as a safety net. To do that, what we found in conjunction with the Department of Health and Human Services is the people that we were seeing frequently, we were looking at folks who were calling us more than four times a month for medical situations. We started comparing names and lists of of people with our HHS partners. We found that folks that were calling us frequently were eligible for program support through HHS, but they didn't know that. Maybe they were eligible for program support through HHS and they were currently waitlisted on one of their their adult uh, uh, support programs. And so that's a collaboration of mobile integrated healthcare is the, the name we're phrasing with it, mobile integrated healthcare. It's a social worker and an advanced trained paramedic that go out and do house visits, go out and check people on a weekly basis. We enable that person to gain a control of their, their healthcare situations, give them the support, the referral to the other community, nonprofits, as well as governmental organizations that are there to help them. And we see a 50% reduction in the people that are enrolled in MIH, 50% reduction in their calling 911 once they're an enrolled participant. That's a big number. That is a huge reduction in the demand for ambulance or EMS capability. But more importantly, what we're seeing is the enrollee, the, the, the resident, is becoming more empowered, more controlling, and having a much better living and home structure. And they're much more enabled to control their medical situation. And those folks' self-esteem, those folks' well-being is improving. 
So it's beyond just the pure medical capability. So again, this is a joint program with Health and Human Services and the fire department. And we're taking care of the needs with the goal of preventing them, that is the, the, the customer, the resident, preventing them from calling 911. Okay. As the county grows, particularly in the Bethesda area, the buildings are getting taller. Mm -hmm. How will the county fight a fire that starts at the top of, say, the new Marriott building that's being constructed, which is, what, 20-some stories tall? So the county has long had sprinkler requirements. 2005 was the, the, the last change in which all single-family structures had to have uh, sprinkler systems. And that goes back all the way back to the mid-80s uh, when it started with multifamily structures. So let's talk about that high commercial building. We call anything over five-story building a high-rise, okay? okay? The code kicks in in buildings over five stories okay. to be considered a high-rise. Those structures have a different fire protection system incorporated in them because of their, their height, their structure. So a couple months back, we had a pretty significant fire on University Boulevard, 3333 University Boulevard, the Waterford apartment. Mm -hmm. It's a high-rise, multifamily apartment building. Fire started in, in the apartment. A building like that, that's an unsprinklered building. There's about 80 multifamily residences in Montgomery County that are unsprinklered remaining today. In a multi-family high-rise building, they're compartmentally built. So almost as if you were to see a video about how they build the, the, the units on a container ship, they build them and then they slide them into place. They're already prefabbed. Kind of apply that to a multi-story building. Mm -hmm. It's traditionally heavy concrete construction. If not concrete, it's steel. There's fireproofing built into the different compartments. So... The fires traditionally stay in the box. They stay in the apartment itself of origin. Now, sprinklers are gonna be in place. That residential tall building in Bethesda is gonna have a sprinkler system. That sprinkler system is designed to keep that fire in check, let the resident get out, give the resident, the person in that room time to get out, initiates a notification to your fire service, and then keeps the fire in, in check. Fires are growing faster and faster with materials today, but sprinkler systems are going to take that fire in about the two to three minute mark, stop the fire growth, keep it in check, and then hold it in place until the, the fire service gets there. So tall buildings, be it in the Pike District, be it in downtown Bethesda, are not a concern to me operationally because they have these built-in safety features. Tall building, as an example, is constructed to the point that if you're not on the floor of the fire or two floors above and one floor below, you're not even notified that the fire is occurring because you are safer in place in your apartment five stories above than you are trying to walk down the stairs through the situation. So the fire alarm systems are even designed to specifically only provide notice and evacuation you know, messaging to those that are in need of exiting. And that's because of the, the life safety features that are part of the new construction. So very much a critical part, something that the Department of Permitting Services leads 
the, the fire code enforcement and the fire code uh, review of all these structures and something that has been in place for many, many years for Montgomery County. Now, you mentioned residential buildings often in your answer. At least half the Marriott building is going to be an office complex. Mm-hmm. Resi- these same, these same. Oh, yeah, absolutely sprinklered as well. And, and when we do have what we are, as you're seeing, a mixed, the first two stories may be commercial and then the upper stories will be residential. All of that is going to be sprinklered. And, and the vast majority of that is going to be a, a fire resistive construction method. And even if it is wood frame in the residential area, there are sprinkler systems in place. And, and that's designed for the occupant to, to get out. Okay. And while we were offline, you mentioned that there's some new legislation kicking in uh, July 1st on count, uh, carbon monoxide. Can you discuss that? Absolutely. Um, as we were saying offline, carbon monoxide is identified as the silent killer. It's odorless, colorless. The three of us here in the studio can't detect it. The, the listeners can't detect it with their, with, their, with their smell. You find carbon monoxide when you have a block in your flue or the, the exhaust path where, where the exhaust is coming out of the house, or if you have a malfunctioning appliance that creates normally a blue or orange flame. So if you're using natural gas or propane, wood or coal, anything in your house that creates a blue flame, blue-orange flame, that has the opportunity to produce carbon monoxide, which is the byproduct of, of incomplete combustion. When that builds up, that can quickly overcome a, a, a resident. And when it occurs at night, when you're most vulnerable, uh, when you're sleeping, you're not going to be aware of the initial symptoms. And that's why it's called the silent killer, and it can overcome people while they sleep. The other key thing to the listeners to be aware of, cars. Your engine, the exhaust from a car, produces carbon monoxide. Mm-hmm. When a car is left running in a garage, accidentally, also at times regretfully on purpose, that is another production of carbon monoxide, and that can seep into the house, through the doors, under the doors, around the windows, whatever it may be, and then create that that danger situation. So carbon monoxide alarm, as of July 1st, 2019, becomes code requirement in Montgomery County for all residential units in which there is a fuel-burning appliance or an enclosed parking space. So I want everybody to understand that if you have an electric heat pump, electric oven, stove, dryer, hot water heater, if you have an all-electric apartment or or residential unit and you do not have an enclosed parking space, you don't need a carbon monoxide alarm. But if you do have something that has a blue-orange flame or you have an enclosed parking area, absolutely, you need one. They operate very much like a smoke alarm. They're coming in with 10-year batteries as well so that you can buy it. It's about $30 for a carbon monoxide alarm, just like a smoke alarm is about $30. Buy it, install it, and it becomes your silent sentry. The code requires it one on every level of the home. The most critical part, as you may have caught, while you're sleeping, when you're at your most vulnerable, so the carbon monoxide alarm, the most important one that you put in place, needs to be near your, the primary sleeping area. You want it to wake you, your family members up, when it's 3 o'clock in the morning and the flu for the hot water heater got blocked mm-hmm. and it's producing carbon monoxide. 
as with the smoke alarm, when the carbon monoxide alarm goes off, first thing, get everybody out of the structure. Get out. You're not knowing why it's going off. You can't smell it. Smoke we can see, smoke we can smell. When that alarm goes off, take it for its purpose, exit the structure. Call 911 from outside. Let your emergency services come. Check it out. We'll bring specific meters with us and we'll be able to identify the source of the carbon monoxide. Again, frequently it's a blocked flue. Maybe it's a closed damper on the fireplace. Maybe it's a malfunctioning appliance or that car running in the neighbor's townhouse. So it, it may not be your residence. It may be the adjacent one that's causing that problem. So take it for its alarm point. Don't unplug it. Don't disregard the alarm and call 911 as soon as you get outside and don't reenter. Okay. All right. Thank you very much, Chief. This has been very informative. Um, Thank you. This has been Montgomery Talks. I'm Doug Tolman, senior reporter at Montgomery Community Media. I've been speaking with Scott Goldstein, the uh, chief of the Montgomery County Fire and Rescue Service. Our engineer today was Carolyn Roskowskis, and our executive producer is Gaynell Evans. Talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.